Dara Nuna, Dara Nanawal. Yungu, Nalamanyan, Dunimanyan. Nanawalwari, Danawari. Wanga, Wanjalinjinyan. I acknowledge the Nanawal people on whose lands this Canberra Times Meet the Author event is being brought to you. Uh, my name's Andrew Lee, the Federal Member for Senna, uh, and I'd uh, like to thank Colin Steele for auspicing tonight's event. Uh, tonight you're in for a real treat. Uh, Dr Rebecca Huntley is one of Australia's leading social researchers, having run more focus groups and surveys than most of us have eaten hot dinners. She's a regular on the media and adds being a marriage celebrant uh, to her extensive array of skills. Rebecca's written books about food, family and social issues, but she now turns her attention to the hottest issue of all, global warming. In her book, how to talk about climate change in a way that makes a difference. She talks not about climate science, but about public opinion and how to shift it. This book is about how to win the climate wars. Rebecca, welcome to tonight's conversation. Andrew, it's so nice to be talking to you again, even if it's um, through uh, screens rather than in real life. So what led you to write this wonderful book? <laughs> uh, look, I think, I think that I was probably like a lot of people that come to climate change later in life, and I can say that I'm at later in life, rather than growing up as a kind of committed environmentalist or as a natural scientist whose discipline takes you to climate change and makes you kind of passionate. As you would know, I, I kind of started as a kind of labour person and a feminist and didn't ever, while I was concerned about the climate and I believe climate change was real, I didn't ever consider myself to be, you know, an environmentalist. But one morning I woke up and I was watching um, the students' climate strike. I think it was the second one, the one that was significantly bigger. And I was watching it on, and it might have been that I hadn't had my first coffee or I was a little bit tired, but there was something quite um, profound about watching these young people, only a little bit older than your children and mine, um, making, I think, a really earnest plea to an older generation um, in power to really do something. And there was really this kind of emotional moment for me that wasn't really one about enhanced understanding of the climate science or even really a better understanding of the politics of climate change, but really a kind of moment as a human being and as a mother and as an Australian where I thought, you know, I think it's time now for me to really spend a lot of my intellectual energy in my professional life, as well as some of my personal decisions focused on climate change. And I saw it very much through the identity of, of being a mother, a mother of three kids. So it was, it, you know, to tell you the truth, Andrew, it completely took me by surprise. It was almost, it was almost a physical experience rather than an intellectual experience. And, and um, it's kind of, changed the trajectory of my life in many ways, in quite a profound way. Um, I wonder too whether the fires that we had over the summer might have also sparked a similar kind of shift in me, but by then I'd already decided to write the book, do a significant amount of research and actually wrote a lot of the book during the fires, which was um, in and of itself a very difficult um, and stressful experience obviously not just for me but for you know so many Australians. Well here in Canberra we had the worst air quality in the world on New Year's Day so we, uh, we very much felt that uh, that viscerally. If I take a, a central message out of your book uh, it's that we should 
stop talking just about the bad stuff in climate change and start painting a, a positive picture. Uh, but climate change is really bad and, and it could be catastrophic. So why do we need to be upbeat? <laughs> well, I think, I think the thing is, well, okay, let me, let me start by saying that there are no easy conclusions and no kind of one-size-fits-all formula about communicating about climate change. I think if we did have that available to us, we would have nailed it by now <laughs> because we do have many, many good um, climate communicators and general communicators um, in, in Australia and around the world. Um, what's clear is that we have to strike quite a delicate balance between loss and gain when we talk about climate change. We can't just say, we can't just win the day by saying technology will get us there, the market will get us there, it's all fine. Because that is not only disingenuous, it's actually, it actually it's an outright lie. We have to have that combination of technological development and behaviour change, government leadership and leadership from all parts of the community. But really, people are never inspired to change unless there is something at risk and there is something that they might lose that they value today. So we do have to um, paint some kind of a picture about what's at stake. What that thing is, what that thing that is at risk and at stake is going to be different for different kinds of communities. For some people, it might be the natural environment they love. For other people, it might be different. So, um, you know, it really, it, it does really depend in, um, on, on the values of the community you're trying to try to talk to. That being said, what I find continuously is apocalyptic visions of what will happen in 10 years for the kinds of groups who we really do need to communicate about to about climate change to in a way that um, will make them act with some level of urgency. People just find all kinds of ways to, to push push that message away. And in pushing away this kind of terrible vision, they're also pushing away all the possible solutions that we could posit for um, creating a livable world. So I'm constantly looking at that balance between loss and gain and how do we keep the conversation going? If we start the conversation with a lot of complicated science um, and with really, really extreme, a fireball vision of a world collapsing in, in 10 years, then what you do is you miss the opportunity to have a really interesting and important conversation with an audience about that the technology and the renewable technology that is available to us is working. The solutions are at play here in Australia and around the world. So you miss the opportunity to engage them on the solution if you are too catastrophic and extreme in your approach for with those audiences that, again, we need to bring into the conversation and bring along in terms of advocacy and action. So I've sort of found my own advocacy on climate change shifting somewhat, though I don't think I've quite gotten to where you are. Uh, I remember early on in my term as being a federal politician, uh, arguing a lot from authorities, saying, well, the IPCC says this. Yeah. Uh, and then we had the same-sex marriage debate about the same time. And I had uh, religious ministers coming into my office and uh, saying, well, you can't vote for same-sex marriage because of Levit Leviticus. Uh, and I realised that if I wasn't taking Leviticus literally, perhaps it was unreasonable to think climate <laughs> deniers should take the IPCC literally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I shifted to to talking about hottest decades and, and about facts yeah. rather than rather than authority. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know if I'm with you on the on the catastrophe stuff. 
Uh-huh. Um, I really liked uh, Uninhabitable Earth and Six Degrees. Uh, and, and as an economist, I really admire Marty Weitzman's work, which suggests that actually mm-hmm. as economists, we should worry a lot about climate change because yeah. some of the biggest costs are the small probability catastrophic events. Yeah. Aren't we sort of hiding the truth from people in not talking about climate catastrophe? No, we absolutely need to. And I think that you've, 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 you've put it, you've kind of highlighted a really important point about who tells us about this, right? So who are the climate messengers? And, and this notion about economic gain and risk is a really critical one. A very unlikely hero at the moment for me in the climate conversation is the insurance industry. Um, to a lesser extent, some of the really, really big, big money investors and including some of the big super funds. These are organisations that, that their raison d'etre is to think more than just the next 12 months. They have to think the next 10, 12, 20, 40 years. And they're saying from quite a um, persuasive and potentially dispassionate um, position, this is a serious problem. We are creating an unlivable, uninsurable world. And that is a problem for your premiums. That's a problem for our industry. So I'm not saying that we need to take, um, take an honest picture about what's at stake or talk about risk. But I've just seen time and again, um, group, you know, if fo- in focus groups, again, of people that we need to win. We need, we need to win those, the hearts and minds of those people and get them to vote for governments who take renewable energy and climate change seriously. We can lose them in that picture and fail to engage them on the solutions. Um, so, again, it's a very delicate balance about how you talk about loss and gain. And this is why a much more nuanced and focused approach to communication rather than kind of um, a spray and pray approach, you know, that one kind of message is going to reach all people. I mean, I read The Uninhabitable Earth and a lot of people couldn't read it. I found it incredibly useful. It sits on my desk as a reminder of everything that could possibly happen and, and the trajectory that we're on. But I'm already kind of in the camp of people who are, who are focused and concerned. So, again, we've got to just we're think about audience, we've got to think about messengers, and we've got to think about that delicate balance between loss and gain in our conversation around climate. Your book has this uh, fascinating structure where you have chapters on particular emotions, uh, sort of almost a, a Martha Nussbaum turn about it. Uh, you talk <laughs> about the emotions perhaps we, we shouldn't be over-relying on, uh, yeah. fear, guilt and anger. Uh, talk us through why over-reliance on those emotions can be problematic if you're trying to persuade people that climate change matters. Yeah, so, so one of the problems about, I mean, I talk about those two emotions as being connected. And I make the point from the very beginning that all of these emotions exist in us for good reason. Like there's a reason, you know, you know, flashes of constructive anger and anger serves a purpose, right? Being angry all the time is never particularly good for your mental or physical health. Um, there's a reason why we feel guilt and shame. It's to make sure that we, um, you know, we... People who um, feel guilt and shame—they've kind of—they've—they've um, they've transgressed some social norms, and there are reasons why we have social norms for social order and all the rest of it. So I went in looking at those issues, thinking there's going to be there's going to be moments where all of those negative, so-called negative emotions can be helpful, 
But I have also seen in the research that I do and in the message that I test, anything particularly that focuses very much on shaming people for the decisions they make, particularly individual decisions that they might make, like deciding to drive to work rather than ride a bike and all the rest of it, is it can be a barrier to, again, engaging people with the larger issues. So a lot of those negative emotions in terms of people pushing back can be really problematic. Um, but then there have been examples where, and I talk particularly in the chapter on anger, that moments of collective anger and frustration, let's say at our elected officials, not you, Andrew, but <laughs> other people that we could possibly name, who ignore things like climate change, um, that they are really they are really effective and can be extraordinarily effective. And no great social movement has ever not kind of cherry-picked from these emotions when they've thought about campaigning and they've thought about messaging. But, I mean, I was really also interested in thinking about, um, because, of course, one of the unfair, unfair criticisms of the environment movement is that it is a kind of it is kind of negative lots of horrible visions of the future lots of angry people finger pointing and and all the rest of it and i realized that we we again we need that really kind of delicate balance between positive and negative loss and gain um, that we use in our communications about climate change um, and, in, and including a, as positive as possible vision of the of a livable future which which really kind of um, harnesses some of the emotions like love, like care, um, like trust, um, like hope. Those are incredibly important because nobody gets behind nobody gets behind a vision of the future that doesn't have those elements in it. So let's uh, move on to those uh, those emotions that you think should be more strongly emphasised. Yeah. Uh, you talk about the importance of hope and, and the different kinds of hope too. Yeah. Uh, you quote uh, Per Espen Stokeness, who talks about defiant hope. Uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit more about the varieties of hope and how we might harness it to do good on climate change. Yeah. So I, I went into the book thinking that I was going to end the end the book with hope, but the more that I read really thoughtful thinkers on, on climate change, hope can be a bit of a mirage. And in fact, in all the big surveys, uh, global surveys around attitudes to climate change, one of the real characteristics of people who resist the climate message is they place an over-reliance on dealing with climate change of the idea that there is gonna be some great technological breakthrough. Right. So, oh, well, I hope other people will solve it and I hope Elon Musk will not want to go to Mars and will just invent something where I don't have to change my life or rethink my relationship with the natural world. And so that kind of Pollyanna-ish and I think kind of, you know, um, uh, you know, disingenuous hope is really problematic, right? It's, it's a different form of disengagement, right? But all of the people um, who write about hope in the climate context talk about things like sceptical optimism and, as you said, defiant hope. And I think that is optimism in the face of an understanding that, um, that things are serious, serious now, and that there is there is no way we are going to be able to avoid even if we even if we make all the great changes that we can make now some significant damage and significant loss. Anybody who works, um, you know, scientists and natural scientists who work in the natural world talk about that loss that's happening right now. So 
I think this idea of defiant hope is, was, is one that I kind of hold very strongly in my heart. People often ask, you know, every time I do these kinds of sessions, people ask me, what are the, um, why am I hopeful? One of the reasons why I kind of have this defiant hope is that I feel I have an emotion, I feel I have an ethical obligation to my children and their generation not to give up and to remain optimistic. But I, I you know, you and I have read the science, it's not a pretty picture. And so we need to continue to be hopeful and optimistic in the face of a recognition of the nature of the challenge in front of us. We really have no other choice. I mean, the, the choice is either to bury our head in the sand or to build a bunker and stock up on canned goods. The only, the only kind of viable middle path is um, engagement, activism, and this defiant hope, which is that I will keep going even in full knowledge of the difficulty that faces us. Mother asked us uh, to uh, to discuss Ross Garno's superpower, and uh, it struck me that in some sense, Ross is writing a technocratic version of your book, uh, in that he is crafting a world in which Australia can be an energy superpower, a sort of optimistic vision of uh, of how we might deal with climate change. Mm -hmm. uh, do you see you and Ross as uh, singing from the same hymn sheet, or, or at least in the same church? Yeah. Yeah, I was very lucky that he read the book and he really enjoyed it. And um, I, of course, read his book um, and have been involved as well in testing this vision that he has and the, the, the potential that we have to be energy, uh, uh, renewable energy superpower with the, with the spectrum of groups that I talk about in the book. And there is a lot of optimism and excitement, but what there is is also not a lot of understanding that that's possible, right? So there is still a lot of... Um, uh, lack of education, lack of understanding, first of all, about how the extraordinary developments in solar and wind. Secondly, the extraordinary opportunity that Australia has that, that we couldn't even really be talking about because the technology just didn't exist 10 to 15 years ago. The extraordinary opportunity we, that we have um, and wherever you are in Australia and wherever you kind of sit. And, that, and also the other thing that is very, very poorly understood in the community and where I would like to see a much better and a kind of a richer understanding is the diversity of jobs that can be generated through renewable energy and the and the second tier of opportunity that renewable energy gives us, which is clean and cheaper energy, whether that be for the manufacturing industry or whether that be just for local fam, you know, local houses and families. And one of my favourite stories, which I have to tell, I have to tell you. Andrew and share with the audience. In all the work I've ever done on renewable energy, I remember being in Adelaide a number of years ago, talking to a man who in um, who ran a gelato and um, cake making business, second generation Italian cake maker and gelato maker, who had through actually was under the Jay Weatherall's government, had had some support to make his entire um, small business um, running on renewable energy. And I said, well, what did that mean for your business? And he said, well, it meant that I just wasn't worrying about what the big electricity bill was going to be because Adelaide can get pretty hot in the summer and, you know, you've got to be, got to be cold if you're making gelato. And he said, it means that I've hired a new pastry chef. And for me at that moment, I realised that pastry chef is a renewable energy job. That 
That is not somebody installing solar panels or worrying about a wind farm. This is a situation where a man doesn't have to worry about his electricity bill, has some renewable energy in his small business, which means he can invest in skills or he can invest in, and he actually bought a new gelato machine as well. So for me, I think that, you know, that was that very, very small example that made me realise that we've got extraordinary potential um, in terms of economic and job creating potential out of renewable energy. And that's, and we can be incredibly positive about that. And that is not Pollyanna-ish. That is really the antidote to where, where we have to also be honest about the challenges that face us. We can be absolutely honest about those challenges at the same time as being honest about the opportunities that exist now and the extraordinary technology. Is that the best argument in the case of uh, jobs that will uh, need to go uh, as, uh, as we transition towards cleaner energy? Uh, I mean, to take, to take one straightforward example, uh, a whole lot of coal-fired generation in Australia is reaching the end of its uh, useful life. There's no interest from the market in investing in it. Uh, there's uh, little suggestion that uh, government would keep all the current coal-fired power stations going. So mm -hmm. if you're speaking to people who work in those, uh, the, those stations or to the, the local communities, how do, you, how do you craft that message of hope? People say Germany's done this well. Is that where yeah. you look for, uh, for a role model? We do. And I, but I think, I, look, this is, <laughs> this is so difficult. I suppose the, I have um, been lucky enough to work with those people in the trade union movement and those people at the grassroots level working um, with workers across Australia and say that it's, it's never as simple as coming into town with a PowerPoint presentation about, you know, growth in renewable jobs, right? It's just, it's not going to work. I think where I've seen it work well is when the energy and um, uh the license to have this conversation starts at the community level, at all levels of, you know, at the community comes together and thinks that, okay, well, we need, we need a new source of jobs and a new source of um, um, uh, something to sustain this community beyond um, fossil fuels. I think it's, I think having a whole lot of people come out and tell people what's good for them never really works. Um, I think we've got examples of that happening around Australia. I think, you know, what's happening in, in places like Port Augusta with their um, fantastic tomato farms and um, solar um, uh, fuel tomato farms and, you know, all levels of government coming together, the community business, you know, with some funding from government to make those kinds of things happen. We need to scale that up. But it is really difficult. And I understand the cynicism of um, those communities that have relied on fossil fuels for so long, because let's face it, they, they are, they've seen jobs disappear and they're just holding on with their kind of, you know, white bare knuckles with the jobs that they've already got. And what are we asking them to trust? We're asking them to trust that all levels of government will get their act together and businesses will be do the right thing and replace um, the jobs that are going with new and exciting jobs. I mean, that's a really, that's a big risk to take. Um, so I think that, you know, this is, again, this is where leadership is important. This is where looking at what other countries have done well and also looking at what's already being done around Australia in terms of renewable energy, creating um, jobs, all kinds of jobs that sustain communities. So the people actually think it's happening, not this is something that's gonna happen in the future. 
Um, but it is, it's really, it's a, it's a tough argument to make at a time of, of low trust in government. That being said, you know, what we've had with COVID, and there's a lot of very kind of lazy thinking about how COVID's going to help climate or undermine climate. But what we're already seeing, if the pandemic continues for a couple of years, you'd know this more as an, as an economist, it's for those people who, because of the pandemic, can no longer do their jobs, right? Their jobs were so reliant upon a particular kind. So people in the arts community, for example, or people in I mean, any, anybody or, you know, parts of tourism. Something like JobSeeker helps bridge a gap between either where they are in the labour market now and whether they stay in the labour market in that particular place in one or two years' time may not be the case. Some of them will go and do new things. They will drift. So we, government can be good at building a bridge when people can't do that job anymore for whatever reason. Help some people into other kinds of employment, whether that be through new opportunities that the, the economy provides or some training and support. Some people might emerge and still do a similar job outside. So we, we, are, we are finding ways to support people through disruption. Right, so they can stay employed. Now, some of those people, COVID might be in early retirement. Certainly some people in the university sector <laughs> potentially might be in early retirement. You know, I'm actually pretty appalled. I've just got to say that I'm utterly appalled at the federal government's lack of support for the university sector. If we're going to get any solutions around climate change, whether that be around the technological, improving um, the great technological strides we've already made or any of the any of the work that we need to do and we come from universities. Um, but I, I think that government can play an incredible role in or, and has shown that in COVID that it can play a role in supporting um, the labour market at a time of transition and climate change should be no different. Yes, I certainly couldn't agree more with uh, your observations on universities. Uh, whether you're looking for solutions on climate change or pandemics, uh, they're, they're likely to be found with, uh, with researchers. Yeah. But I want to bring you on to perhaps the most controversial idea in your book, which is this notion that uh, the way to talk about climate change is by focusing on love. Uh, the politics of love has a, a, a strong genesis. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela talked about a po politics of love, but it doesn't come up very much in Australia. Uh, no. I gave a speech on the politics of love in 2016, and uh, I think it's fairly safe to say it, it sank without a trace because people just didn't know how to talk about it. Uh, so why is love important to climate change? So one of the things that, one of the things I try and do in the book is talk to a whole range of people who've been climate change communicators in different, in different ways. And it was always love of something that, not hatred of, the fossil of you know fossil fuel CEOs or any of those other things. It was always something they love being under threat that tipped them into a, made them a climate activist. And I'm, I was often you know when I was writing this book, I was looking at some of the normal you know ways in which we talk about climate change. We tend to start with all these charts and about CO two levels and all the rest of it. Um, you know, rising tides, and then we talk about you've got to care about climate change. No, and the thing is, is I think that that the and then thinking about how people in my groups, when I ask them, what's worrying you in your life? What are you thinking about? 
they really start often with they, they start with anxieties, but the anxiety things they worry about are always threatening the things that matter to them. So the starting point of the conversation can't be caring about climate change. It has to be caring about the things that threaten climate change, that matter to you, that matter to your family, that matter to people in your local community, people in your city, people in your state, people who love the things that you do. And one of the really exciting things that has come out of the last couple of years are interesting, I suppose, groups of people who've connected climate with the things they love. So farmers for climate action, surfers for climate action, there's even veterinarians for climate action, um, engineers, architects, um, healthcare professionals of all kinds, parents. Um, and so these are people who kind of think, well, what matters to me in my life, whether it be the place I love, the people I love, the thing I love doing, tennis, cricket, there may, climate change may threaten test cricket. Is there anything more un-Australian? <laughs> I can't imagine. I can't imagine. So I started to think right, about, well, how... Yeah, how does climate change threaten test cricket? Well, because how... We, well, the thing... Because of the heat. And also the other thing, of course, is there will be the spectators. I mean, we think about how the very nature of sport and how much we enjoy sport has been changed by the fact that we can't go and watch it. How do we encourage a love of a sport in our kids if they never get the opportunity of seeing it live? How do we encourage a love of theatre or movies or any of those other things if everything's mediated through a screen? We need to be part of a community I you know, miss seeing the footy with a whole lot of other people who were yelling. It's not the same as seeing it you know, through a screen. So I started to think about how can we start thinking about love and the care of stuff that matters to us as a starting point. And interestingly, there's been quite a bit of research on this, including out of Australia, about this notion of how we need to identify objects of care in people's lives. And that can kind of be anything. And if people are able to make that connection between the thing that they care and the threat that climate change poses, then it becomes easier to start to make climate change, which is a big, scary, amorphous, global activity, seem more relevant, seem more connected in, in their lives. Now, what has happened in the, in the recent, for example, fires is while we haven't seen the fires bring about a massive change in general community attitudes, what we absolutely have seen and what I've seen both in the research and in my own life as a climate activist is people coming to me and saying, I was always worried about climate change, but it wasn't at the centre of my life. Then the fires happened. Then I saw those images then the place that we went every holiday for as a family burnt to the ground and now the penny has dropped. And so for them, it's about the threat of the thing that they love. And so I think that you're right, perhaps because we're, I don't know why we're a bit squeamish about talking about love. I mean, half of my family is Italian, the other half is Scottish, Australian. Italians don't have that much of a problem about talking about things that they love. It tends to be food. If we manage to connect climate change to threatening parts and parmesan and in fact interestingly climate change does threaten durum wheat quite significantly we're having some issues with pasta um growing wheat for pasta and climate change um i think it's a really it's a really great a new angle into talking about into finding a way to make climate change relevant and therefore try and motivate people to think more about what they can do to protect the things they love and care about
Who do you see who's talking about climate change around the world in, in these terms of love that you, you imagine? Are there, are there world leaders or activists that you think are uh, employing that, that particular approach? I think it's at the centre of a lot of really interesting climate activist work, often at a, you know, not just at a leader, leader um, way, but in a, often in a collective. The other thing that I was really struck when I was looking at the book is the role that faith leaders can play as really important climate spokespeople. Sometimes as progressive members of the left, um, uh, we, I don't mean you and me, I've got to say, but sometimes we can think that people who have, are of religious faith are anti-science. And I think there can be some really lazy um, conclusions made that people who believe in God kind of think climate, you know, aren't as concerned about climate change. We tend to associate religious belief with far right-wing conservative views. And I think that's really problematic. Um, and in fact, in researching the book, I found that pretty much every religion in the world, including a collection of evangelical religions in the United States, have made really strong um, statements about climate change and the need to protect, uh, you know, God's creation on earth. And we are stewards of God's creation. And of course, what any any anybody who goes to anybody who is a person of faith and goes to um, goes to church regularly or goes to synagogue regularly or any of these other things realizes that when you're in that context, God's love and love for His people is constantly talked about. And so I thought there was a really interesting that religious leaders can be really interesting role models in talking to us not only about our legacy to previous generations and our responsibility to generations that come, but talking about that, talking about that love and love as a starting point. So I was, I talked to faith leaders, I interview one in the book, and I'm, I'm really admire some of their, their kind of their approach to this issue. I think it can be something that people who are um, heathens like me can learn a lot from that approach and that language. I want to push you a bit on the uh, impact of individual action versus collective action. Uh, we, uh, we can certainly reduce Australia's carbon emissions by things like putting solar panels on the roof, uh, but no country is going to make its Paris targets by shifting from disposable cups to, to multi-use cups. Uh, ultimately, it's going to need government action in order for countries to, to make a difference. Now, isn't there a, a risk, Rebecca, that... Uh, with your approach of hope and love that you're going to inspire people to individual action but actually those motivators like uh, fear and anger are better when it comes to getting people to get active in the political space yeah no you're, you're absolutely right i mean in in many ways my my suggestions are a bit more around how climate advocates can talk to people more broadly and understand our emotional reaction to climate change and how a nuanced approach to communication. Um, you know, I would say that, that the most powerful thing that anybody can do if they care about climate change is, is vote with climate change in mind and tell their parliamentarians that's why they're doing it, right? So, and that comes from both frustration and love, right? I've, I mean, when I vote, I've, vote out of a sense of, well, it's out of a sense of 
of, um, of, you know, alignment of my views to a political party, but it's always a combination of what I don't want and what I want. What do I love about this country and what political party do I think is most likely to protect the things that I love and address the things that I worry about and the, worry and the, things, the anxieties that I have? So I think that um, you're absolutely right. I think what I, I write quite extensively in the chapter on shame and guilt that while individual actions and the sense of, you know, advocacy we get when we put solar panels on our roof or we compost or we ride to, ride, you know, drive, don't drive to work but walk, if done at scale, can be effective. But nobody pretends that's where we go. And the other problem about that is it makes, like, me, it's like I'm responsible for dealing with climate change when my power as an individual or even as a household is actually quite limited. So I have a real problem with that kind of individualisation kind of, you know, focus on the household that's happened in so much um, environmental and climate advocacy. Um, even people who are in, um, in the private sector who take climate change seriously say there's only so far that the market can take us, right? We absolutely need all levels of government, strong leadership and a consistent policy framework to make any market-led solutions to climate change the, at, at effect, as effective as they possibly can be. And my individual actions or the individual actions of my community have to be supported by that as well. And look, Australians, and we've talked about this before in the past and we've done stuff before, Australians are cynical about politicians and the level of disengagement with politics and continuing levels of disengagement, particularly amongst young people, is concerning. But we still see a role for government. Um, now, we don't want to take that kind of, you know, the value that Australians put in government too much for granted because it could fall away. But I've never, ever, ever done a focus group where somebody says that the government um, aren't, shouldn't play a role, can't play a role. And most of the surveys show that they think that they should be doing more. Whether they think, whether they want to pay for it or what they should be doing is up for grabs. That's a, that's a larger, more complex advocacy question. One of the books that's had the biggest impact on me this year, uh, apart from yours, is Ekan Hirsch's book, Politics is for Power, uh, which argues tellingly yes. that uh, too much so-called political activity in the world at the moment uh, is more like uh, people behaving like sports fans, uh, cheering and jeering, rather than actively getting involved in making change. Uh, getting involved in making change means we've got to have conversations with friends and family and neighbours, we shift people's views about climate change. Uh, but we had a question from Robin who said she's never known anyone to uh, shift their view from being a uh, climate supporter or climate denier or vice versa. Uh, do those transitions really happen or, or are these views much more set in, set in stone? It's a really good, it's a really good point. Um, so I'd say that if somebody is a genuine climate denier, it's very, very unlikely that they're going to shift their view because their shift their view is really quite, entren quite entrenched in a particular kind, which is that, and often not just to do with climate change, with a particular kind of, of view, view around politics, ideology, the role of government um, and the role of the market. So, um, but in 
what is what is clear over time, and we know this, for example, from Yale Six America study, is that we have seen a slow shift. We've seen a, a rise in the group of people who would describe themselves as alarmed. Um, some of those people are transitioning over from being concerned about the environment. We've seen a kind of a rise in people who are concerned. And a slow decrease in people who would describe themselves as cautious or doubtful about climate change. They still exist. So we are seeing slow transition and slow movement in the community over time. The problem is it's not going fast enough. It's not going as fast as, as climate change itself, right? So we are not, and the other, there's a very, very good line that I took from a book by Nathaniel Rich about climate change. And he said that one of the things that has been doing, making this change, as people's personal experience with the weather, extreme weather events, as well as advocacy around climate change, personal experiences with climate change. But um, extreme weather events will not shift public opinion in the time allocated to us. So it is true, it is true, and you see from both an anecdotal level and from a level of the data that people are moving. The problem, of course, is this is happening at the same time as in Australia, people have seen you know, one Prime Minister after another fall over because of climate policy. So at the same time as you're seeing this increasing concern, you're also seeing an increasing sense of frustration about whether the political, political leaders on both sides of politics and Labor and Liberals are actually able to manage the internal politics of climate change, right? And what this means is that we focus on the problems in the political class around climate change and perhaps are not cognizant of the fact that actually the world is moving towards renewable energy, the big money is moving and the technology is there. So we've got a really, got quite a cocktail of problems, like greater concern, greater cynicism about whether the political system can work it out and then perhaps not focusing on, on what actually we can do. The thing that makes me really excited um, and the thing that can often really um, be a little bit of a light bulb moment in the groups that I do is the extent to which we're starting to get some really, again, like I said, quite unlikely advocates of climate action in the business community, in the faith community, amongst farmers. And, you know, I think a real key to trying to shift public opinion and essentially, um, you know, uh, even further is for different kinds of people to step forward to talk about the importance of climate change and climate action in whatever way they want to, which is why conservative voices are so critical, while rural and regional voices are so critical. Um, the climate movement is um, made up of a lot of people that look like Andrew and I with PhDs who are white. Um, we need much greater diversity in amongst climate voices and we're getting there and I think that's a that's a work in progress and I think is also going to start to shift um, people's views because we do people want to hear from people that they um, uh, kind of relate to and can see their lives in their lives so that's really important too. We were just saying today the National Farmers Federation supporting yes. by 2050 joining yeah. Australian Industry Group, BHP, yeah. you know, 73 countries around the world, every Australian yeah. state territory. Uh, but yet we haven't got the federal government moving on that. And uh, that is in part because 
uh, multiple Liberal Prime Ministers, our Liberal leaders have been blown up by climate change. Uh, My people asked, uh, isn't this really a a question of what's going on within the Conservative movement? Uh, A critique you could apply not only here, but also to the United States, where uh, uh, opposition to climate action has become almost a litmus test for involvement at senior ranks in the Republican Party. Uh, Australia, for example, where uh, the National Energy Guarantee passed the Liberal Party room twice, uh, but still couldn't be implemented because of a substantial group of uh, climate change deniers in in the party room, the the internal politics there. So do you agree that the problem is fundamentally about the internal politics of the Liberal Party of Australia and the US Republican Party? And, And if so, what do people who are outside those parties have to do? Yeah, I mean that is part of it. It's not the only. It's not the only thing um, getting in the way of, of significant climate action at a federal level. Um, the Labor Party, my party, Andrew's party, has some people in the Labor Party who have slightly different views about climate change, as we've seen from the newspapers today. Um, I think one of the things that we can do is really support, you know, at really support conservative leaders who are prepared to kind of come out there with a target on their back and really talk, um, you know, really talk about climate change in a way that is almost brave. Um, In New South Wales, we have a Minister for the Environment who, um, Matt Keane, who just talks about climate change in a way which it's kind of almost crazy brave if you kind of think about the extent to which, you know... (laughs) Um, sometimes being a, a, a conservative who isn't hedging your bets on climate change can mean. So I think that we need to continue to send a message that that climate change shouldn't be something that's just owned by the progressive movement. Um, so I think that we can, I think that that's absolutely one thing that we can do. The other thing we need to really understand is that, and I've said this before, I said it in my quarterly essay, is that we will never really know the, the, um, the influence that the fossil fuel industry has on politics unless we reform, unless we have donation reform. You know, people say they're not influential, um, they're influential indirectly, but we have no idea um, about whether that's the case or not. So that's one thing that we can also do. I think there's also cultural and social power of the fossil fuel industry. And the other thing that's happened too is that the broader business community, and they're getting a lot stronger in their views around climate change, but their views on climate change aren't and and the things that they're prepared to do and again the business risk that they perceive in in action on climate change they're not aligned with their colleagues in in the fossil fuel industry either so maybe you're starting to see and again um able to start to see those other industries and businesses um you know actually be much stronger on those questions and again there are many ways that we can support them as consumers um, if you work for those businesses as well. So I think that we're going to start to see all of those things happen. One of the things I suppose I say is, I think it would just be, it would be too narrow a focus to say this is just a problem with the Conservative parties. I think we're at a point where things have to move so quickly, we have to throw everything at it. And it's a bit of a cop-out to say, oh, this is just all about a few deniers in the Conservative Party and the Murdoch media, as powerful as they are, um, we need to do all kinds of things in all, in all kinds of avenues to really shift this. 
Do you think there's a risk that a, a frame which looks at love and hope moves you away from the best tools to reduce climate action? Uh, that is, it moves you towards subsidies, you know, whether that's in the form of uh, direct action or a Green New Deal, yeah. uh, and away from measures that seek to, to put a price on, on carbon pollution. You know, it has been said that uh, uh, without yeah. bipartisan support, pricing mechanisms are devilishly hard to get up. Yeah, that's uh, right. they, they get up in Europe and in Britain and in New Zealand because you get bipartisan support, likewise in California. Uh, but in other places where you don't have bipartisan support for pricing mechanisms, mm. they collapse. And then you're in a space which many economists would say is uh, distinctly inferior, where yeah. you're looking at subsidising green technologies rather than using market mechanisms to encourage the phase out of, uh, of greenhouse emitting industries. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think one, one of the difficulties, of course, given everything that happened with um, the ETS and the so-called carbon tax is that we almost... We're, it, we're at a point where, like you said, economists know that that's actually the most practical solution available, but it's been so tainted by a time of political turmoil that we'd have to, you know, I thought the thought of, of, of kind of having a kind of collective amnesia to be able to start that education campaign again. I mean, again, quite an incredible act of leadership to be able to to make that kind of thing happen and of course it's a very difficult time to campaign on those kinds of questions particularly if you're trying to look to be elected so it's really challenging so i mean again it's one of those things where i think the arguments for that need to come from surprising places i don't necessarily as much as politicians can make that point I think we have to start to, you know, who are the people that we really trust who are actually going to be able, who we think are going to, you know, make those best arguments. Again, business has been, needs to step up, this is what other countries are doing, um, and this seems like the most reasonable course of action. I mean, just out of, just an anecdote. Um, for you, Andrew, and for everybody out there, is that I was doing focus groups all the way through the lead up to um, uh, to um, Prime Minister Gillard's um, so-called carbon tax, and leading up, everybody was really worried about it. Everybody was talking about it. It was implemented, not a word about it ever again. Nobody mentioned it, right? And it worked. We knew that it was working. Then. When it was gotten rid of, not a mention in a group. <laughs> now, of course, it was a commitment that Tony Abbott's government had, and if it, they hadn't got rid of it, it would have been mentioned. But honestly, I think it was one of those things that there was a lot of anxiety before it happened, and then after it happened, very little. Very similar thing happened with the GST. Huge amounts of anxiety about the GST implemented, people adapted. So I, I wonder whether there isn't a bit of a lesson in that in terms of in terms of, of of at least in government being able to decide to do something and then knowing that it'll you know basically if it's the right decision and the most efficient decision it will land and you can you can um, write it out. Very similar thing happened when the dollar was floated. I think as well, lots of anxiety 
And then when it was spotted, not so much anxiety afterwards. We're, we're actually much more adaptable, aren't we? We've known, we've seen how adaptable we can be in COVID in terms of changes. Um, Absolutely. You know. It was interesting to, to me to see how quickly many of those who had supported uh, green schemes were, were willing to uh, be, be, be passive bystanders or to, to actively assist in it going. Uh, the, the greatest example, of course, is this, is uh, Al Gore flying to Australia to stand next to Clive Palmer as he yeah. uh, would vote to remove uh, carbon pricing. Yeah. Uh, the, the notion among Al Gore and others who supported it was that uh, that was the way in which you'd save uh, Arena and the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. Uh, but I'm yet to meet an economist or a scientist who yeah. thinks that they were doing more to, to reduce emissions oh, uh, than uh, Clive Palmer voted, uh, voted for. Uh, yeah. And uh, That the was a terribly in- awkward moment, wasn't it? Worst... <laughs> <laughs> it was like the worst possible bumble date you could have ever gone on. They'd obviously had, they're obviously being set up, the worst possible blind date set up. This is a good idea. First time they ever met each other, they just stood next to each other. It's very odd. Never went on a second date, though, I'm sure, after that bad first date. <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving from, uh, from macho blokes to, uh, to, to women, uh, we've got a uh, book group watching us tonight, uh, Grant Woodell Johnson. Hi. Grant. G'day, guys. Yeah. Uh, Thanks they, for buying the book. <laughs> uh, here it is, available in all the good bookstores everywhere. Uh, and they have asked uh, you, Rebecca, to reflect on uh, what they saw as something of a tension in your book, where you talk early on about the really important role of girls and teenagers in advocating for climate change. But then you say later on that in your focus groups, women, and particularly women with kids, were among the least likely to talk about climate change. So is there a tension between that and, uh, and what's the role of gender in thinking about how we, we work on climate change? The gender stuff is a really interesting, it's um, well, it means you're really paying attention to the book, which is making me very happy. So in every survey that I've seen in Australia or been involved in, there has been a slight skew in concern around environment towards women and I wouldn't want to overestimate the skew but you know I mean it's statistically significant but not let's say as dramatic as for example where you live how educated you are and your political affiliation right but it's there Um, and interesting there's a precedent in terms of for example there was always a bit of a gender skew towards women in terms of attitudes to for example nuclear weapons so, and, and, and there's been a lot of work done when people look at the history of the environment movement, that while a lot of the leaders were men, um, the grassroots and the, as community organisers, the effectiveness of women. Now, when, if you combine in all of those surveys, generation and gender, then you also get a bit more of a skew. So, for example, the younger you are, if you're a woman, the much more likely you are to be concerned about climate than if you're an older woman. But again, I don't want to overestimate that. What, what the psychological studies have shown and some of the work's being done is just there's a bit, for young women who are engaged in climate, they've just got a particularly good mix of skills and predilections that make them excellent climate communicators. But when we start to look at the surveys, not just at a general kind of demographic, um, you know, demographic kind of, de- at the demographics, 
But if you look, for example, at a segmentation, so the segmentation that is done at, out of Yale, the Six Americas study, the Five Americas and Six Americas study that have been done in Australia, including the segmentation that we've um, just finished and I'll be talking about a lot for in the next five years, we find that those people who are disengaged on climate, there's a big skew in that towards women, low-income women with kids. Why? Because they are completely and utterly overwhelmed in their lives and they question whether politics has anything to offer them to help them in their lives. So that's something, a little bit something about gender, but also about this particular group of women in the labour market might be renting, they might be single mums, they might be working part-time without a lot, not a lot of superannuation, really big caring responsibilities to children and parents. And they're just trying to get through the day. And when I think about those kinds of women, and I think if you say to them that the, that the price of caring about climate is a whole lot of new stuff you have to do around the house, right? You've got to have recycled this and composting and, you know, can't possibly use a straw, then that's just going to be one more, that's just going to be one more thing that they have to deal with. So that disengagement is pretty significant. So there's some different elements to the gender aspect around climate. Um, the fact that women with lots of kids with not a lot of um, social or economic capital are disengaged from an issue as big and overwhelming as climate change is not inconsistent with the fact that um, activists who happen to be young women who are really good at talking, really good at getting other people to do stuff, really passionate, interested in STEM subjects in a way their mothers and grandmothers might not have been or might not have been allowed to be, and really good at politics and good at social media, um, that's great. And that's where we're seeing some really extraordinary um, women leaders emerge. But that issue of disengagement and also that issue that if we make climate action all about how to manage a household effectively, and we know that there's already a gender, like a gender division of labour around that, it's just not fair. <laughs> so just one more thing on the to-do, as a mother of three children, it's just one more thing on the to-do list when we're not, we don't feel like we're getting an enormous amount of help from anybody else, whether that be from our government or our partner or any other kinds of things, so... I understand that. I understand how people, why people feel that way. Rebecca, you've written on an astonishing variety of topics. Uh, feminism, <laughs> food, identity, optimism, now climate change. I want to ask you finally, what's next? Uh, what topic is piquing your curiosity? <laughs> what the next book's going to be about? Well, I've got to say, Andrew, it's, like it's going to be climate change until I feel that we've won. <laughs> And by win, I suppose I don't want to make it a battle until I feel that I can go to bed at night, look at my kids in the face, my, the face, and I say, look, it's not, there's some things that aren't going to be that pretty. You know, we're still going to have some rising water and some difficult, you know, um, bushfires. But hey, we've got 100% renewable energy in Australia, a, a thriving energy, um, renewable energy um, led economy. Um, there'll still be a barrier reef that you can swim around in. There will still be koalas. Um, and that's going to take, you know, a very, very long time. So that's pretty much it. That's you just anything. If I write another book and I, I, <laughs> I've got the energy to do that, thinking about that at the moment, it's going to be on an aspect of this. Well, that's certainly a message of uh, hope and love. 
Uh, Rebecca Huntley's book, How to Talk About Climate Change, available in good bookstores everywhere. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us on the ANU Canberra Times Meet the Author series. Andrew, and thank you for your always searching, probing and excellent questions. <laughs> Real pleasure. Good night, everyone. Good night.